Hello and welcome to the Earful Runner podcast, a show devoted to sharing the love of running in Disney and the stories of people who come to race in the most magical place on earth. I'm Mary, and Emily and I have a very special show for you today in celebration of Global Running Day. When we think about the runners that inspire us, this gentleman is at the very top of our list. His feats of endurance, strength of character, and generosity of spirit really inspire us, and we are so excited to welcome Don Machow to the show. Don's a seasoned ultra runner, Ironman triathlete, and he's also a type 1 diabetic. He's the founder of Type 1 Determined, an organization devoted to connecting and empowering people with type 1 diabetes to run, walk, ride, and play with confidence. This spring, Don captivated our Run Disney community by completing the first ever Mouse to Mouse, a run from Disneyland to Walt Disney World, a journey of 2,761 miles. Even more incredible, this run was completed within a larger run across the U.S. with a total of 2,845 miles, which Don completed on April 7th, 2021. We're so excited to talk with Don about his history, his record-setting run, and his deep love of Disney. Without further ado, here's our conversation. So let's, you know, start at the very beginning. Tell us about your journey as a runner. How did you start running? Why did you start running? All the fun details. I kind of fell into it by accident. I was um, trying to think how old I was. I believe I was 42 in 2004. And I had been living fairly much in denial of my poor control for uh, type 1 diabetes. And that year, I had vision problems that my retina specialist called to my attention that I had dreaded for a lifetime. Um, People tell you upon diagnosis that sometime in the distant future, if you don't take care of yourself, you can uh, begin to have um, serious visual issues that can result in blindness, uh, circulatory issues uh, that can have some pretty um, gross and unpleasant downstream effects in terms of your ability to feel things Um, In some cases, amputations, uh, when you can't control infection and extremities and stuff like that. And this warning from my retina specialist about visual problems was kind of a come to Jesus for me. And I had already decided that same year, probably sometime in the summer of 2004, that because I could feel myself struggling to breathe going upstairs, that I was going to be physically active somehow. And it was actually after I had made that decision that I got the diagnosis that um, I had a proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And it kind of kicked my physical activity into high gear. Um, I had been shuffling along, you know, 10 minutes on the elliptical, that sort of thing, kind of half-heartedly trying to be active because I knew it was what good boys do. And What I found was that I was drawn to running because for $10 at Academy, I could get a pair of of, uh, on sale running shorts and go grab a pair of sneakers. And even if I didn't look as cool as the kids down the block, I could run. Um, You know, if I looked at a bike that was $3,000, you know, for for a nice road bike, um, you know, maybe even seven or $800 new. And I could buy a lot of running shorts for that kind of money. 
didn't know how to swim, so that kind of ruled that out. And I wasn't much good at anything else. So I kind of thought of running as something that I had, you know, I had done as a child. You're going to run as hard as you can to the other end of the playground. And I kind of felt like, okay, this is within reach. I can do this. Um, it wasn't until 2011 that I ran my first marathon. And I was into that for a while and discovered that I wasn't very fast at it. Um, there are a lot of people in the running community who seem to value speed. And I decided that, you know, I'm already an old guy. Um, I'm my 60th birthday is this year. So back then I probably would have been, been around 55, 56, something like that. Um, already a fairly old guy, came to fitness late in life. So I decided to focus on distance rather than speed. And that's eventually what got hooked me on all got me hooked on ultras. That's awesome. So before we get to the sort of like ultra and Uber endurance journey, I, I'm very curious as an athlete, um, with type one, was there anybody, was there a community that you could turn to for support as you were kind of getting started? Some other type one athletes that could be like, Hey, here are the ropes. Um, there were a couple of people that I knew personally, but to answer your question in the broader sense, I did not feel that I knew of such a community. Mm -hmm. um, there probably were some groups online. Um, I'm not certain how many there actually were, but I was unaware of them for the most part. And there were a couple of type one friends that I got in touch with who were runners, um, Julie and Carol. And um, there was a third lady that joined into it a little bit later on named Donna and her story is a little bit interesting. We can go into it if we need to, but Julie and Carol basically said, we'll, we'll teach you how to run. You know, we'll, we'll show you how to do it right. We'll show you how to do it so you don't hurt yourself and so you don't get discouraged. And when they got me interested in, in running more than that sort of sloppy turkey trot that I had done in 2004, I kind of felt like I owed it back to them to share my experiences with others um, you know, all the bumps and bruises along the way, because I felt like there were other people like me who were stumbling through it the way I was. And it was just by chance that I ran into Julie and Carol. And now it turns out that if you wind the clock forward, um, between 2004 and 2014, I became aware of, of a number of rather large online communities of active type ones. Mm -hmm. But it still amazes me that there are people out there that I run into who aren't aware of it. Um, when we did the US run, I was constantly running into people on the side of the road. Not I, that sounds like I hit them with a car. But, <laughs> uh, I encountered people on the side of the road who had seen the van and stopped and said, Oh, my God, are you you know, are you running across the country? Are you that type one guy? Tell me about yourself? Can I run with you? And I like nothing more than to have a running buddy who is as slow as I was that, that we could talk about our stories and find out what we had in common. Um, that was really a, a very rewarding experience for me. That sounds amazing. Um, and I, I can only imagine that some of those folks just showed up in the middle of nowhere at an odd time and they were just like a little bit of trail magic just showing up. It, it most, it, it definitely was. Um, during 
the uh, it was a long year with a, a number of pauses, two of which were for COVID related reasons. And I became discouraged during those pauses, not only because I wasn't continuing to run, um, it didn't make sense at the time, but also because I've been cut off from that contact with other people who wanted to share their stories. Mm -hmm. And it was a relief to get running again, especially for the last segment, the third segment of the run, because we felt like more people had been vaccinated and we weren't constantly backing away from people and pulling up our neck gaiters to, to try to make sure we didn't get cooties. And it just felt like we were more able to share stories with people and to hear their stories. I can imagine there, there were probably thousands of stories over the, was it 2,845 miles in total? Is uh, that 2,845 from coast to coast. Because it was 27.7 to Disney, uh, to mouse to mouse? 27.61 um, between the two parks. It may be a little bit more than that. Um, the reasons that you see a lot of numbers in the media is that when we first started doing the run, um, and we were west of the Phoenix area. Um, we had one set of numbers when we hit the Apache reservation, uh, just south of Phoenix, uh, we had not gotten good information about the route. Mm -hmm. And the original route was supposed to go through Kamatki, Arizona. And we were turned around by, um, a Gila river, uh, reservation security guard. Who, or policeman or whatever you want to call it, who basically mm -hmm. said, this is private property, you're trespassing, we're going to go back and reroute. Um, so we ended up adding 15 miles to both totals. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you'll hear uh, 2845 and 2761, which is our latest set of numbers. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and look at older reports, you'll hear a shorter number than that. Gotcha. So let's, so let's get, uh, you know, as we, as we get into this and, and the data really is your race report and the data in your race report is amazing. I, I was, I, I cried a little bit when I saw what was happening to your, uh, your GPS watch and like it was dying and there was like a series of nine photos. It's like, well, I didn't save your workout. And I was like, oh my God, I can't even, I can't yeah. even imagine. We should talk about that at some point. <laughs> oh, it was, that was just, that was crazy. But, um, so you're in, you know, you're a marathoner, you're an ultra athlete. I believe you were also an, you're an also an Ironman finisher. Is yes, that correct? That's correct. How did you make that jump from big organized sort of like very common endurance events to FKTs? How'd you, how'd you make that leap? Um, the last event that I did that had a starting gun was a solo run of Relay Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in 2018, I believe. Um, and if I remember correctly, it was the first week of June. Uh, don't hold me to that, but I th think it was. I want to say it was June 1st to June 8th or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I discovered after um, running races where there was a very clearly defined type of entrant um, and finish time and starting gun and all of that other stuff was that 
it seems to me, unless you're talking about, um, I believe her name is Candace Burke. I always get her confused with somebody else, but the lady who does the Tahoe 200. Oh, Candace Burke. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, unless you're talking about someone like Candace Burke, um, most of the 200 and ups that I run across down here in Texas have been relays that have opened their gates to solo runners. Got it. Got it. And um, partly because I'm not much of a trail runner and partly because uh, my goal has always been to see how far I could run and to do it on my terms. Um, the first 200 plus mile run I did was a, a relay run from Austin to Corpus Christi. And the rules that the race director, um, I'm trying to remember his name now, Clint Henderson. Um, the rules that Clint laid down were, if you're a, if you're a solo runner on the re relay, you decide when you're going to start, but you are still being held to the finish line gun. Um, you know, if the timer goes off, that's the end of the run, tough, you know, tough toenails, you should have started earlier. I don't know that that's really the general practice for things like the Tahoe uh, race. I don't think so. I think that one has a starting gun. But um, I kind of like the idea of being able to say, okay, here's what I need to do to finish by, you know, 730 on Tuesday afternoon. Here's when I need to start, you know, here's when I need to take, take my breaks. I had begun to think about FKT type things. Um, and, you know, it's basically it's you and a finish time and you figure out what you've got to do to make that happen. And I got my first taste of that on that uh, Capital to Coast Relay. Um, when I did Relay Iowa, I actually had to approach the race director and say, do you mind if I do this solo? And he said, you're crazy, but sure, go ahead. I'd love it. You know, it's great publicity. Um, so we did that one as a demo event. Um, there were not official solo entrants. Um, but he went ahead and publicized it as, okay, this guy's doing it solo and y'all cheer for Don when you see him. Um, it was virtually the same in terms of logistics as the Capital to Coast run was. Uh, about seven eighths of the way through, I started seeing relay runners. Um, I had started probably a couple of days before the race actually started for the relay because um, it wasn't going to be a constant 200 miles for me. I had to take sleep breaks and things like that. Um, I knew by the time I did Capital to Coast on seven and a half hours of sleep that I needed sleep breaks. So we planned uh, to do Relay Iowa with six hours of sleep and about 50 to 55 miles uh, a day. Um, I got into FKTs when I began to learn that the only runs longer than 340 miles that I could that I could actually sign up for were in Europe and I didn't want to um, you know go buy tickets to go scout the route and come back to the US get all my junk together you know get a visa <laughs> uh, because I was going to be gone for a few weeks um, and then go do the run and then come back and find out that I had basically drained my bank account of six thousand bucks so um, I decided to focus on attempting um, a run across Texas without any knowledge of whether or not it would be an FKT. And um, I documented it because I kind of felt like 
you know, if I'm going to convince anybody I did this in this amount of time, I'm going to need timestamp selfies. I'm going to need um, uh, GPS workouts and stuff like that. And um, it was in a conversation on trail and ultra running that somebody said, dude, I think you beat the old FKT by two days. You should go ahead and submit this. And I did. And it, it turned out it was an FKT. Um, Jason Arsamont, I think, set the original fastest time across Texas. And I don't know what year it was, but it, it was 29 days. And I, I finished in 27 days, eight hours and 36 minutes. Can somebody, can we back up for a second for somebody who's totally out of their depth? This is Mary's wheelhouse and I'm <laughs> totally out of my depth. What does FKT stand for? Uh, fastest known time. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. There's an organization called fastestknowntime.com that uh, keeps records of that sort of thing. Um, and for any of your listeners and viewers who are sort of unfamiliar with the process, um, there are sort of at a loose level um a couple levels of of record setting record keeping whatever you want to call it um you know if 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 you're talking about like a transcontinental run or um a run of a particular route like the arizona trail which i think is 800 miles or the katy which is a 250 in one direction um if you're attempting to set a record you can go talk to guinness and guinness is pretty picky um, they want witnesses, they want the whole thing videoed, <laughs> um, they want affidavits that uh, anybody who you may know is not lying about your, your time or your speed or, you know, whether you wa walked or drove across a bridge. Um, fastest known time people rely on what I call a preponderance of overlapping evidence. And uh, just as an example, um, <clears throat> They say on their rules page that they recognize that GPS watches have errors and they can fail. Uh, the Cento 9 Barrow and the Ambit 3 that I have um, refuse to believe that anyone runs longer than 1000K. And so when you get to 1000K, it just stops your workout and does not save it. Um, but it goes to a screen and says your workout is over. You ran 900, or sorry, you ran 625 miles, or you ran, you know, 999 kilometers, and you can take a picture of that with your cell phone. But the moment you hit OK, that workout is lost, um, and that apparently is a frequently frequently enough occurring event that they acknowledge on their rules page that this happens. But that's not an excuse for not documenting. And they recommend you get a couple of different brands of GPS watches and a spot tracker or a Garmin inReach or something like that that doesn't fail. Um, and when I was doing the US run, I was outside of Nogales and uh, fell and tripped for probably the third time in a week. And uh, always followed my right shoulder for some reason. And I killed my GPS and uh, I sent out to Garmin and I said, please, I need this overnighted to me. I need another I need another tracker. Um, but to this day, uh, the GPS track for my workout shows no evidence that I ran from Nogales to Douglas. Um, my watches had that evidence, but that they ate the workout. <laughs> uh, and so um, I have timestamp selfies that I would have had to would have to have gone through an incredible amount of effort to fake 
because it would have been would have been driving at four miles an hour and stopping at road signs and stuff like that. And, you know, I took casual photos along the way, you know, beautiful sunsets. Oh, this is a funny looking tree with tinsel on it, uh, that kind of stuff. And the good thing about fastest known time is if you can overlap your evidence, they acknowledge that equipment fails and that you have gaps. Guinness wants somebody with a video camera or one of their people hired out at, you know, 200 bucks an hour or something. And um, it's much more practical to attempt an FKT than it is to attempt a Guinness record for anything. Now, That's fascinating. the downside is that a lot of people have heard of Guinness, but like, like yourself, you know, what is FKT? <laughs> Sounds like a cuss word. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've actually t uh, talked a fair bit about some of that stuff to Peter Vaquin, who runs the FKT organization, and they're reasonable people. Um, they can tell cheaters when they see them. So it was an accident that uh, the Texas run was an FKT, and I wanted the US run to be one. Um, but they have since changed their rules and uh, because people were sending in, you know, FKT around my block, you know, uh, FKT from the light post at the end of fifth and main to some random location in the forest. And they were getting just thousands of FKT routes. And they finally said, you know what, we're accepting only routes across states or across the country. And uh, by the time I had done the Disney thing, they basically said that doesn't qualify as a route anymore. So it was the first and it was the fastest, but it's not going to ever be an FKT because it, it uh, even though it touched both oceans, it's not, it doesn't beat Pete Kostelnik's record. Oh my goodness. Wow. 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 So many, so many thoughts on this, Don, but I, so how did I don't you, be, I don't mean to be long winded. I, no, uh, no, no. It's just, it's amazing. Like, no, it's, it's fascinating because I love planning and I love, and, but this is like planning on just like to the 10th power. This is so incredible. How this did you, support. oh my gosh, it's amazing. The spreadsheets must be glorious. How did you begin to plan for this, uh, us run? I started thinking about it, um, back in, early 2019, before we had even done the Texas run, partly because I had it in my mind that since it was a little over, just a shade over 850 miles across Texas, uh, depends on the route you pick. Mine was 851 miles. Uh, Jason Arsamont's was, I think, 860 maybe. Um, you can either go from El Paso to Orange or El Paso to Texarkana. Um, and it's not for the get the reasons that Guinness picks, you know, San Diego or San Francisco City Hall to New York City Hall. Um, it's because there are only so many ways across West Texas and you either end up in Orange or you end up in Texarkana. Um, everything else, it's like halfway across Texas or it's El Paso to the Gulf Coast and you still got 150 miles of Texas left. Um, it's just not in the ocean. So um, when we started planning it, we looked at what are the safest routes we could run that were basically did not take longer than they had to to run the full breadth of Texas. And once we had that route in place, we said, you know what, this is 850 out of approximately 300 miles across the country. We can reuse this route for a run across the US. The fact that we had a third of it already mapped and scouted and we you know, knew what the dangerous bridges were meant that we kind of pre-launched it 
before we even contemplated seriously doing a transcontinental run. So that's part of what got us interested in seeing if we could map the rest of the route. Um, it took almost a year after we had the Texas route already in place to um, plan and scout a route across the US. And um, we picked February 1st of 2020 as our starting date, partly because we wanted to get across the US Southwest before it got hot. And if you started any earlier than February, you were in a monsoon season. When we actually went out to do our scouting trip in, I believe it was January, I think it was early January, uh, we got caught in a torrential downpour in, I believe it was Western Arizona and the roads actually flooded. And that was, that was a risk um, that we didn't want to take, to take up on, on our run. So we, we decided to run starting in February so we could avoid the monsoons and avoid, and we basically get out of Arizona and into West Texas before it got too hot. And out of curiosity, Don, what would the projected time to finish been, you know, assuming that February 1st start date, I understand that you got paused a couple of times. Sure. Um, we, it should have taken us approximately 90 days. Mm -hmm. um, that includes, I believe that includes a rest day every 10 days. Um, and that's based on about a 15 minute mile all up all in, um, including bathroom breaks and lunch breaks. Um, the reality was that we had six months of COVID pause um, when we hit the second time we hit Texas because we hit El Paso, then we went into Mexico, then back down into Texas. So when we hit, uh, just got out of Andrews, Texas, we had our first COVID pause, which lasted six months. And then the second COVID pause lasted four months. Um, so it should have taken 90 days and it did take about 90 days of running, um, but, um, we didn't we didn't expect it to take an extra 10 months it was supposed to have been done in less than 100 days and it took 431 including covid pauses wow wow so so Not much running getting done during that time my goodness so take us through that that january 31st you're in los angeles you're getting mm -hmm. ready you've got i would have to imagine hundreds of piles of gear and food and all of this stuff like What's going through your head the night before you step off? Um, seriously, uh, was I going to get eaten by mountain lions? <laughs> fair, totally fair. Um, there was a section of uh, desert road south of Joshua Tree that we had elected to take um, after our scouting trips along the northern side of Joshua Tree convinced us that that road was very dangerous. Um, there is a section called the Morongo Grade, which is a steep uphill on California 62 headed in the 29 Palms. That's outside a military base that has about three lanes of traffic going in either direction and a one and a half foot shoulder. And I had received recommendations from people that that was the route to take. And it was just by chance after we scouted and said, I'm not taking that route that I talked to a guy who said, you know, there's a road called Powerline Road that uh, it's a dirt road, but it runs parallel to I-10 for about 24 miles until you get to California 177. And then you want to take, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, I don't remember the exact name of it, but it was something like 
Sky Mountain Road or Eagle Mountain Road or something like that, um, basically cross over I-10 and get onto a frontage road that feeds you into Desert Center. Um, and the, the uh, power line road was not bad. Um, there's actually a Jeep trail that runs even closer to I-10 that I decided to take because I could always see I-10. Um, and uh, I was concerned because Powerline Road has a lot of uh, mine access roads running off of it. And if I had missed a turn, I would have been headed towards some abandoned mine. And uh, I was scared that that was going to happen. And when I got out on the, the trail and started seeing uh, footprints for um, mountain lions, I kind of thought, you know what? I need to finish this 24 mile stretch as quick as I can. <laughs> Oh, uh, this is not going to work. Don't mind the coyotes. You can shout at them and get them to move away. And, you know, eventually they decide you're more trouble than you're worth. But I didn't feel that same way about the mountain lions. Having only ever seen one, I can totally understand that. And he was way high above us on a ledge. And we were south of Austin, somewhere at a, like a park. And I just remember seeing his paws like folded over the ledge on over us. And I was like, okay, we're, we're it's now a race back to the car. <laughs> this is what's happening here. I, I hear this you. This is why I don't do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, an old meme I saw somewhere. It was like a picture of a mountain lion running down a trail. And on the top, it says not a trail runner. And on the bottom, it says now you are. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I could, I could totally see that. Um, so Emily is, uh, also has done a transcontinental run as part of a team. Um, she did the, the 4k for cancer a couple of years well, yeah, ago. Yeah, I know about that route, that route. Um, I was going to ask if you don't mind my changing the subject, um, Go for it. that, uh, section, uh, I think it was, uh, in the vicinity of white sands through the, I believe it was Lincoln national forest with, uh, all the mountain switchbacks. How was that? <laughs> that terrified the hell out of me. I looked at that route and I thought, you know, no, I'm not doing that route. So I did a more northern route. So I went from San Francisco north. So I went through Lassen Volcanic National Park, oh, okay. um, which also has switchbacks. And we actually, that was a national park we got into and the rangers were like, you cannot run this. And we were and like, they, really? And they were like, no. Nope. Or they just don't want runners. They just didn't want runners. They were like, you can go as far as like this point. And then you have to hop in your van and you got to bypass the switchbacks before you hop out and you keep running. Oh, so it was a safety um, thing again. It wasn't yeah, so a, was a preserve thing. nature kind of thing. Yeah. So um, my team, I think we were my, so the way that we did it was we had two, we had two vans and we would split the day's routes, the day's route in half. And so one, uh, one van would run from where we slept to the halfway point, And then the next, the other van would run from the halfway point to where we were sleeping the next sure. night. So my van was done. We ran the whole uphill, like 5,000 foot, you know, elevation gain to Nat Lassen Volcanic yeah. National Park. And then we were, we were done. But our other van was supposed to do the rest of that route. And they ended up doing like a bunch of trail miles within the park and then being like, all right, that counts. We're done. <laughs> like back to. I, I hear you. I hear you. I, but um, your ability to recount what roads you ran on is just absolutely mind-boggling to me i can recall cities like point to point but if you ask me any of the names of the roads in which i ran i could not oh part of, part of it is that we did document it in such incredible detail um as we were going that it was easy to remember where i had been um and what roads i had taken uh we made sure we stayed to the route but the um second thing that helped was that 
um, when I uploaded, this time I was smart um, and I stopped the workout at the end of every day and uploaded it um, with the uh, Cento app, which uh, they used to have an app called Moves Count, which mm -hmm. uh, was, was notorious for being kind of janky. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, Cento app uploaded the workouts to Strava as well as to the uh, Cento Sports Tracker uh, app, or I think that's a third party app they use. But you could tell by comparing the Strava workouts to the sports tracker workouts, the sports tracker workouts actually said where you went and when you stopped. And, you know, if, if you were idle for 10 minutes, it, it basically said, oh, well, Don's at the Burger King using the bathroom. Um, the Strava would completely ignore that. And so one of the things that we, we did was look at the differences and how long, it, you know, how fast it said I was going and where it said I was and we could figure out, okay, this was when Don stopped at the Burger King to go to the bathroom, or, you know, this was when we stopped at lunch. And, you know, in some cases we had a photo, in some cases we remembered, oh yeah, there was that little picnic table uh, on US 180 in, in uh, Palo Pinto County outside uh, Metcalf Gap. And we remembered it well enough because in that particular example, um, I ran into a motorcycle club and you know, we chatted for a little while before I got started running again. Um, often just knowing where I was and how slow I was that day and um, whether we had uh, taped my feet or something like that reminded me that I was going at, or just the fact that we were going at a slower pace reminded me that maybe my feet hurt that day. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, I remember where I picked up the blisters and the rest of it was just putting the puzzle pieces together. How many pairs of running shoes did you go through, Don? Um, I like to tell people seven and a half. Um, I completely exhausted seven pairs and I put on an eighth pair. Um, a short version of the story is my first and last pairs of running shoes. Um, one, one had Velcro all the way around the top so that I wouldn't get sand in my uh, shoes uh, running up the beach at a I think it was 43rd Street. It's either 43rd or 47th in Newport Beach. Um, it's uh, it's about three blocks away from the Chronic Tacos. It's the basically the first street you come to. And um, I had a second pair outfitted similarly for the Atlantic Coast, figuring I would have burned the soles off of the first pair by that time. Um, so I knew I was going to use those two for sure, and. I tend to burn out a pair of shoes about every 350 miles or so. Um, so seven and a half pairs. Um, I know how many I how many pairs of yard shoes I have now, which is what happens to my old running shoes. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> tribe, right? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's like, damn, girl, it's $220 pair of yard shoes. You can do better than that. Um, <laughs> but uh so I, yeah, I know, it was, I know it was at least seven pairs and partway through an eighth pair. That's amazing. I'm curious, so for for me, and you were kind of saying this, I don't know if it was before we started recording or not, but like for me, the things that I remember most about running across the country are the people that I met. You know, I, you know, the miles themselves are a little blurry in my memory. Yeah. I didn't do it solo, so I'm sure that they're probably, those miles are probably a little bit of a stronger memory for you. But some I'm are, some aren't. Yeah. What sticks out in your memory about that journey? Is it uh, the miles or is it like the people? 
It's the people. Um, I won't go through an exhaustive list, but some of the ones that stand out in my mind, um, we were running, uh, there was a section going into Palm Springs that we had, we had made a calculated risk as to what roads to run on. Um, partly because getting out of the Los Angeles area on foot is fairly difficult to do in a safe uh, and pedestrian legal way. Um, one of the things that helps is if you're not trying to set a Guinness record, um, it doesn't have to be roads that a car can drive on. Um, the FKT people sort of let you make the rules for your route if you're the first person to do it and whoever made up the route probably has come up with reasonable rules for it. So unlike the Guinness people, um, FKT doesn't require you to have uh, roads that are drivable, um, but they do have to be pedestrian legal. And you know, even if you go on a bike trail or something, um, you don't you don't want a route that goes across your uncle's property in Montana that nobody else can run um, because how could anybody break your record? They don't know your uncle or maybe they can't afford to pay him off or whatever. So, um, so we picked a route that was safe and pedestrian legal as much as we could. But the reality is when you pick a route that goes across the US, you're going to be on some unsafe roads. Our guidelines for that came from some conversations with law enforcement and basically said, okay, we're gonna do a run across the country. We're trying to get out of the LA area. You know, we think we've figured out our route out, you know, out through Benning and, you know, along the railroad tracks and, you know, picking up on uh, Johnson Road in Mons. But, you know, after that, when we, we head out towards Palm Springs, you know, how are we gonna get from, um, there's, there's a frontage road on the north side of the freeway, right before you get to the Banning Airport, and um, if you don't head out on Tamarack Road past the Morongo um, tribal lands uh, through some really, I won't call it backwoods, it's more back dunes uh, kind of roads, basically heading across open country until you hit a utility road west of 62. Uh, and that's assuming you go north around Palm Springs, uh, go north past Palm Springs. If you take, um, if you take uh, I'm sorry, 29 Palms, if you take the road into Palm Springs, at some point or the other, you're going to be on the 101 freeway. Uh, no, is it 101? California, it's either 101 or 111. I think it's 111, actually, because 101 is in Menlo Park. Um, so you, you're going to be on that 111 freeway or whatever it is that goes into, into downtown Palm Springs. And you have two choices. You can run against traffic, which is what the cops recommend. And that'll put you in a dangerous bridge with no shoulder for about a mile and a half. Or you can run on the right side of the shoulder with, with traffic at your back, which they strongly recommend against. And it's about a quarter mile and you're off of the, um, uh, I think it's railroad, railroad road dead ends at uh, I-10. And it's about a quarter mile on the far right shoulder of I-10 until you get to the 111 freeway. And you, at that point, you're on the wide right shoulder. You never crossed a dangerous bridge and you're headed into Palm Springs. And, um, so I remember that we had to pick uh, we had to pick roads that were safe, 
And it was on that road that we ran across a guy who was picking up uh, cans. And uh, I chatted with him for a while. And I said, hey, you know, how's life treating you? I'm running across the country. What are you doing? And uh, he said he was collecting cans to uh, save up, you know, the, the money from turning the cans in. And uh, he had been doing it for like 20 years. And he had bought something like 80 bicycles for kids that needed bikes by picking up cans off the side of the road on the California freeway into Palm Springs. That story and, turned in a way I was not expecting. I yeah, that. and I was just like, oh my God, you know, your story is epic. You know, it's just 80 bicycles, bicycles, I know, multi-hundred dollar bicycles. Even if you get them at Walmart, you know, you know, there's at least a couple hundred bucks for a bike. That's a lot of cans. That's a and, lot and of cans. You've gotten 80 bicycles. Because what do you get, like kids. five cents? A, here in New York, you get like five cents a can slash. Something like that. I, I think it's something like that. Yeah. But there's a lady we met in uh, Eastland. No, Cisco, Texas, actually. I keep thinking it's Eastland, but it was Cisco. It was a lady we met in Cisco, Texas. I had just taken a turn at the Shell station heading into town. And she came out. Uh, and, and at this point, I had been I'm trying to think now about 1400 miles in and um, most of that was in a 1200 mile stretch before our first COVID pause. So we, we had just picked up running again uh, in uh, in Texas in West Texas and Cisco is, I would say, Central Texas, more or less. And this lady came walking out from this church with a bottle of water and a $20 bill and asked me if I had met Jesus. And I didn't want to get talking with religion uh, with a stranger. And I just kind of said, I looked around and I said, tell me if you don't see him. <laughs> you know, um, it is hard to run across the country and not see God somewhere. And um, that was just a very memorable moment to me. Uh, at that time, I felt very, very intensely appreciative of things like sunlight and kindness and flowers just because I was a little tired and uh, that happens on runs like that. Um, if you do the, if you do all the miles yourself, it's, it's hard to walk out of it without that Moses on the mountaintop look on your face. And uh, I remember those two things because they stand out for me, but invariably it was the kindness of strangers. And there were many people I met who were complete strangers that were friends when we left. And that was probably the best part of the run. Yeah. I second that that's why you do things like that. And I second that you do come out of it, like seeing whatever God you believe in a little bit brighter. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Well, the thing for me is, um, uh, and I will dive into it a little bit. I'm not a particularly religious person, spiritual, perhaps. Yes, but not particularly religious. And, you know, I think even if you don't believe anything, if you don't walk out of a run like that with a profound sense of appreciation for being alive, then you're a robot. <laughs> that is that is correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's definitely. And I mean, you had the, obviously that connection to your type one diabetes to you know motivate you and run for. And I was running for you know an organization that supports young people with cancer. And that's yeah. When you listen to stories of people that relate to you, or you know, in my case, listening to people who talk about how their lives were turned upside down by cancer, like you come out of it with a profound appreciation for life and the things that your body can do to propel you forward. That's definitely, that's that definitely is, uh, 
a good friend of mine who is a type one voluntarily. Um, she had pancreatic cancer. Uh, she just passed away a couple of weeks ago. She had her pancreas taken out uh, about five years ago to stop this, try to stop the spread of the cancer. And so I knew her through her association with um, diabetes, type one diabetes organizations. And uh, uh, talk about a real trooper. You know, you give somebody the doubt that they may live and they'll find a reason to live as long as it's possible for them to live. And, um, you know, I'd like to use the hashtag T1 determined, but I've never seen a more determined person in my life. And uh, I can't say that I identify with uh, the cause, the cancer cause the way that, that you might or the way that she most definitely did, but um, you have my support. So yeah, the wheels are turning in Mary's head now of how she can run across the country. Oh, I, I, I think I Dear listeners, we really hope you enjoyed this first half of the interview with Don. We'll be back next week, next Wednesday, uh, with the final part of this conversation with Don. And you can check out more about his adventures at t1determined.org. We'd love to connect with you. You can find us online at earfulrunner.com or at earfulrunner on Facebook and Instagram. Happy Global Running Day!